Hello, my name is Ed Brooks and I'm the Executive Director of the Oxford Character Project. And I'm Bethan Willis and I work on Thought Leadership for the Oxford Character Project. And we are here to uh, talk together and to introduce a new podcast that we've been working on over the last um, few months and is about to launch. So we're starting this podcast, Bethan, it's called The Humility Gap, it's been your thing, you've been um, leading this and introducing and interviewing some really interesting people. Just tell us a little bit about it at the, at the outset. What's the Humility Gap all about? So the Humility Gap is um, part of a larger project run by the University of Connecticut on humility and conviction. And it's a project which is seeking to discover how can we talk to each other in public in more productive and better ways? How do we hold on to deep convictions that we have, um, but convey them with humility in ways which move us forward uh, rather than divide us further? And so this uh, smaller project, The Humility Gap, is uh, part of that. And we're particularly focusing on how we can become more open-minded. So we often talk about open-mindedness, uh, particularly in terms of values, perhaps, that we hold. Um, but we're not quite sure how we become more open-minded. I think there's agreement that we need to be open-minded, but how do we do that? And so the language of virtues and humility um, might give us some pointers towards the kinds of habits and practices which help us to become more open-minded. Mm. So that's in the, so it's in, in the university, in wider society, we're more polarised, we're more divided, we're hostile in the way we talk to each other, we don't trust each other, all these things, this is this kind of, this is this big picture which we're all really aware about. And we're here focusing on intellectual humility as one component of that. I guess there could have been lots of different um, ways to come to come at this and lots of people have it in lots of different ways even in the thinking about virtues I guess we could have focused on respect or courage or thought about how we understand civility or empathy or tolerance or honesty or hope or lots of different things we focused in you focused in this work particularly on um, intellectual humility what do you find particularly interesting about the theme of humility why has that been the something you've been eager to explore in this regard so I think humility is um, interesting. David Brooks of the New York Times um, seems to see humility um, as a kind of foundational virtue in that it's got this component where we're sort of decentering ourselves. So we're thinking of ourselves in a slightly different way. Um, we're often the centre of our own worlds, aren't we? And, um, and, and our opinions and the ways that we communicate that reflect um, that fact. But we need to kind of expand our circle a little bit and see our dependence on others. And humility is a great virtue which can help us to do that, I think, to see that we depend on others and that um, we're going to need other people to enter a dialogue and a conversation if we're going to really understand what's going on, if we're going to get closer to um, the truth of, of whatever um, debate that we're having. So I think humility is quite foundational. So that's one, one reason. Mm -hmm. um, another one, I guess, is... Um, possibly more personal in terms of um, how I've been uh, working with students in recent years. I read some work around humility with some um, a group of students and the female students in particular found it interesting. We were talking about the ways that they um, often don't speak up in seminars um, and they weren't really sure why they're not speaking in seminars. They're very educated, they've um, made it to Oxford, they're articulate in other arenas, so why are they not speaking up? And the work that we were reading around humility was suggesting that actually humility is not just a passive virtue. It's not about sitting back and listening. It actually includes uh, speaking up at the right times as well. And um, 
I thought that was fascinating. I wondered whether digging into this virtue of humility might be a way of kind of um, moderating the way that we talk to each other and enabling um, some of those people who feel silenced to speak in their own voices and to um, find a space and a way of kind of speaking up that humility is not just passive, it's about this kind of active um, speaking. So rather than um, those who are silent feeling they have to become arrogant and kind of ape arrogant ways of talking, that actually there's this virtue in the middle uh, that we, we can talk about called humility. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess there are, yeah, there have been prominent movements as well where people have been finding their voice in different ways and debates so, uh, where, where those you know, responding in public discourse with kind of rap, mass protest movements and where this is constructive. It, the, I guess a concern would be that a focus on humility silences people, marginalised groups who are starting to find their voice in a certain way and are, are challenging the status quo, which is actually has left them um, undermined and oppressed in some way. I think that's right. I think we've got to be careful when we talk about humility. It's not um, a set of behaviours. It's um, this kind of internal attitude and and an orientation. And so you might get a number of different behaviours that emerge from humility, one of which might sound like a very insistent um, speaking in public. Um, I'm not sure we always think of humility like that. We think of it as... Um, as this sort of you know, being being quiet or um, holding oneself in, um, kind of reining in. And for some people, that will be what they need to do. And actually, the case is that it's not just some people need to rein in and some need to speak up. It's that we all need to constantly be checking what is the contribution that I make in this um, in this context um, in ways which are not about drawing attention and status to oneself but are about other ends, which are kind of for the common good. Can you think of examples that are compelling to you where humility has been a feature or is a feature of public discourse, either in politics or white society or in the university, which is you know, where the Oxford Character Project focuses? So there are particular ways you think, actually, yes, this is where this has landed and that's really compelling or particular people, you think, embody that approach? Yeah, I think... It's, it's hard to think of a, a particular um, contemporary instance. I think it's um, when people are, um, you can kind of see that they're willing to be wrong. That's um, something that's important. And they don't see that um, any failure of their own ideas, they don't see that as instantly reflecting back on them or as a threat to their own identity, mm. which I think is really important. So, um in kind of psychological literature, we see that um, humility is often um, linked to high self-esteem, which is perhaps something that people wouldn't expect. But it's a sense of security in yourself, which means that you can talk about ideas and feelings and reasons and experiences without feeling that um, the response of another is going to be a threat to your kind of core identity. So I think it's that trait that I see in people that's most identifiable that is um, really interesting. One kind of historic example, which we explore in the podcast with um, Professor Sarah Williams, is um, that of Josephine Butler, sort of uh, first feminist. And she um, was a very um, humble woman and spoke about humility. Actually, she spoke about humility to um, a room full of um, Cambridge uh, scholars and students as a woman in that time, which is, is quite extraordinary, I think. 
Um, and she was advocating that those men should um, take on this kind of virtue of humility. But in her own life, she um, spoke with humility because she realised that she was dependent on others. And Sarah Williams says that that gave her a sense of freedom to be herself because she didn't feel like she was um, it. She wasn't the answer to this problem. And therefore that kind of freed her up to make a contribution to a wider debate. And so she spoke in a way um, that people at the time reported was very feminine. We weren't quite sure, Sarah and I, what feminine means, but I think they meant she spoke in a distinctive way, which was different from the norms of public discourse at that time, which were um, kind of uh, dictated by, by men who were in charge. So we're exploring humility, and we've been doing that in different ways, actually, since we started with the Oxford Character Project, but exploring humility particularly as a virtue of character. So thinking about this understanding of human beings as able to grow in these excellences of character, which can become over time habituated into increasingly stable dispositions which orient themselves, their thought life, society as a whole towards the, the good. And I guess we're thinking about humility here in the context of public debate and open-mindedness and in the university as an intellectual virtue. And you can, you'll share a bit about the growing research on intellectual humility as an important character virtue that makes for a good knower you know, in order to um, think and know and um, learn well humility in this intellectual sense is something that's important. Could you say a little bit more about this particularly and focusing on intellectual humility as the quality of someone who's an excellent knower. Um, how does that relate to open-mindedness? How does that, you know, this focus on this particular, particular philosophical theme, if you like, and virtue actually going to help us when we come back then to where we want to see impact in our divided society in these polarised debates and hostility and so forth. So. Yeah. So, Intellectual humility, as with most uh, concepts, is uh, you know high, highly debated. There are a number of different definitions that philosophers have offered up, but I think there's a, a few key points that we can take away, and that actually from a number of different definitions, there's um, useful kind of practical um, things that we can work on. So one way that we might think about intellectual humility is in terms of um, acknowledging our limitations. So that's being aware that there are limits to your knowledge um and working to understand those as best as we can and always leaving extra room for our blind spots and biases so when we say that we've got limits to our knowledge they're not just the limits that we know about they are in that kind of classic phrase the uh, unknown unknowns and so however much we think we know whether we've made it to be a sort of oxford professor a world expert in our field there are things that we do not know and we need to constantly be aware of that. And also I think in practice that um, working in this kind of academic context that we do, it's quite easy for those who are at the top of their field to transfer the fact that they are experts in one area to other areas of life and to not acknowledge that their limitations in other areas um, might be um, more severe. And so I think Intellectual humility is about constantly cultivating that kind of self-scepticism, I guess, um, that knowing that we've got limits to our knowledge and, and trying to understand those, but always leaving extra room um, for the, the limits that we haven't grasped yet. 
And I think another um, interesting part of intellectual humility that kind of follows on from that is is understanding how justified our beliefs are. So understanding the strengths and weaknesses of our own perspectives is really helpful. Um, and, and it can be very difficult to um, understand yeah, the justification for our own beliefs. And again, we need to kind of leave some wiggle room to say that actually I may think that my belief in um, a political party or um, an ideology is not as justified as I think it is. And I need to constantly be aware that that might be the case and open to that fact. So I guess it's something around leaving room for doubt um, for grey areas. And I think another way we can think about intellectual humility, um, kind of third point, is, is around status. So this one's a bit different. Um, and and uh, this is about thinking through how we attach status to those who have knowledge. Um, and if we are, um, as people with knowledge, all of us have some sort of knowledge, um, we can be quite concerned with the status that comes with that knowledge. And again, this is particularly pertinent in an academic context or those who are at the um, top of their fields in kind of intellectual endeavours, um, that the kind of praise we get from others, the status that we get from others for, you know, writing a book or having a, you know, research project or whatever else, um, we place quite a lot of value on that. And if we want to be intellectually humble, we need to really be placing a low value on the opinion of others um, in terms of our own uh, knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it, I think it does. It's one question I've got is that you might think, okay, this is fine in a university setting in a conversational kind of approach. These three aspects, knowing limits, allowing for doubts, um, attending to important aspects of status and how we attribute those to ourselves or to others. But how does it work together in public discourse then with the kinds of confidence you might need? I mean, talking about how where humility sits between extremes perhaps and how you know, these aspects of humility could go beyond um, a, a small seminar room setting to something which is a feature of wider debate. Yeah, I think that is really a huge challenge and I think part of this um, idea of holding convictions with humility is trying to dig into that challenge and I think one of the ways we can um, work through it is by acting as though the things we believe are true we've got to do that we all believe that the things we believe are true otherwise we, we wouldn't hold those beliefs I guess um, and so we need to act in accordance with our convictions with our beliefs um, that's not the same, though, as saying that we don't leave any space for a kind of counter argument or for dialogue around that. Um, and it's it's holding them in, in, a, in a slightly different way, I think. So it's not that we're paralysed into inaction. Um, and it's not that we're constantly having conversations, doubting ourselves and, um, yeah, and, and refusing to come to some kind of um, considered opinion. Um, we need to do that in order to act well in the world. Uh, but I think humility is just leaving this space around the edges um, for grey area, for pushback um, and for the possibility of change. Mm. As you can hear in the background, the university is full of change with <laughs> construction going on around us just at the moment. Um, keep, keep going with this. I think so this, maybe we can keep teasing out some different aspects of how, this, how intellectual humility works and, and how virtue works here. So another feature might be thinking about practices and you know, dif 
the important distinction between values and, and, and virtues here, virtues being habituated in practice and then disposing, you know, acting as, as dispositions towards the good, which are, are motivational as well as, you know, you know, nice ideas which might sit in the background in lots of ways. How does the idea of intellectual humility as a practice help us? What does that mean and how does it work? Yeah. Um, so how does it help us in practice? I think it's, it's, a, it's a moderator. I think um, one way that we can think about humility, which not everybody agrees with, um, but I think can be useful, is as a, um, a virtue which sits between arrogance on the one hand and diffidence on the other. So we've got uh, we're all very aware of arrogance in public discourse. And I think this is really what humility is um, standing um, against. The practices of humility help us to counter arrogance that, that, that we see all the time. I think diffidence is another problem, though, that I'm, I am really interested in, and we've kind of mentioned this, that those on the margins, particularly, can be overly diffident. And that means that they're not speaking up, they're not contributing um, in the ways that they, they can. Um, and that's a real problem for all of us, not just for those individuals, um, because we're not getting um, the, the full contributions which, which help us to um, move forward together. So I think that humility it is helpful to think of humility as standing between arrogance and diffidence in some ways because um, it, it holds a space. Um, it draws some people up to speak out and it reins other people in um, to say, hold on a minute, you're overstating your case there or um, you're speaking in ways which are about drawing attention to yourself and not to some uh, common good. So I think, yeah, that's what that's where practices of, of humility can really help us. Should we dig in a little bit to what those habits and practices are? Yeah, let's yeah, do say well, what what are some of these yeah. what are some of these habits and practices which cultivate humility? So I think it's been really interesting. This is really drawing on um some of the interviews that um I've I've um conducted Good. through this podcast series. Yeah. Um so we've mentioned already Professor Sarah Williams and that idea of um, freedom that Josephine Butler grasped and that that freedom that humility, uh, practices of humility can bring is found in understanding our dependence on others. So humility can be, one way we can think about it is this decentering, putting ourselves off, slightly off centre to leave more space for others um, within our um, knowledge and understanding. And uh, Sarah Williams highlighted that there's freedom um, in that. So feeling free to speak in a way that is different from the voices around you is perhaps one um, important thing to highlight. Um, another thing that's really come through is the importance of communities, actually. Um, humility does suggest that we're dependent on others. And uh, one interview that I conducted with a Mandela Road scholar, Chelsea, um, she spoke about um, reflecting with her fellow students on how they were able to have really good conversations within that um, scholars community and she spoke about an ethos of love that's what they'd labeled it um, that they felt that um, there was something holding them together which enabled them to have difficult conversations across cultures and across uh, political boundaries and I think we see that as well don't we in um, with our own students in the global leadership initiative this year we've We've, we've had really interesting conversations. One that struck me was about democracy, the role of democracy, and um, drawing on really different cultural and political experiences from across, across the globe. We had a conversation which I, I don't think I've quite had um, before, um, and it was underpinned by a deep trust of each other, um, a shared 
desire for the common good to cultivate virtue together. And that really changed um, our ability to have these kind of difficult and complex discussions, I think. So I think community, uh, fostering communities of um, trust and care are really important. Um, and another feature, I think, from um, Nadia Figuera from Rhodes House, she highlighted vulnerability, that pushing through our tendency to try and perform for others is really important and um, digging into uh, vulnerability. And that's often about leaders modelling that because it's very difficult um, for those um, further down the kind of chain, as it were, to um, be vulnerable spontaneously. So leaders need to show that vulnerability is OK, that failure is OK, um, and that the, the constant kind of performance that we put on for the world can be dropped occasionally and we can have freer and easier conversations. Uh, but again, that probably depends on the kind of communities that we're talking about. I spoke to David Goodhart as well um, about the themes of place, which come up in his work around um, anywheres and somewheres as he's trying to analyse what's what's gone on with the Brexit, you know, vote and, and the subsequent politics around that. And I also spoke to Uncomfortable Oxfords, who are a local group of students um, running a project digging into some of the difficult histories um, that we encounter in, in this city. And I think um, that through those, seeing that the importance of engaging um, with local people, with local contexts, uh, with people that you may not be familiar with, um, not just within your chosen interest groups, but pushing out into um, engaging with those of different politics of different um, backgrounds is really important. And Uncomfortable Oxford were just underlining for me the, um, the role of pushing into discomfort, which I think is an important practice for cultivating open-mindedness. Um, we can't just stay in the places which are comfortable for us. And sometimes pushing into that discomfort might be a bit costly, actually. Um, might feel a little bit threatening. Um, and, we, and we might not be able to, to you know, kind of, um, push far out but I think little little steps into places which feel uncomfortable for us but will um, give us new perspectives and um, widen our understanding of each other um, it's important and I think another thing um, talking to Nigel Bigar um, we were looking a little bit at emotional intelligence that's needed um, as we navigate different debates and um, trying to unpick not just the um, the surface level of a discussion but how we are communicating our reasons and our emotions and our experiences to each other and trying to understand that others are working on different kind of um, worldviews, but also different ways of arguing and of exchanging ideas. And we need to unpick a little bit of that and leave some space and time to do so, I think. Um, yeah, so those are, those are some of the themes that have um, really drawn out from this podcast. And as you go through it, you, you then in terms of what we can expect through the series, are you going to pull out some of these practices and so we can start to think about what it's going to mean to cultivate humility, like the, so how we learn, how we learn to slow down and engage patiently in discussion, how we learn to speak up or invite voices that we m maybe aren't comfortable with into a debate in order to really learn how we learn to ask questions and, and so forth as practices of humility. Are these areas you're going to, you're going to explore? That's right, yeah. So um, all of the things I just mentioned there are explored with um, different contributors to the podcast. We've got real diversity of kind of politics and um, background and specialities in terms of um, academic interests or professional interests. Um, so I think that diversity is really important. Um, it's, it's good to have a wide ranging conversation. And I think um, particularly with intellectual humility, one of the reasons I think it's a good 
way to approach this question of open-mindedness is that it does span across um, political boundaries. For example, so there's research um, that I was just hearing from Duke University in psychology um, where they're saying that there is no political group which is better um, in terms of their levels of intellectual humility. Those at the extreme ends do show more arrogance, that's true, but um, those on the right and the left have equal levels of arrogance and humility. It's just that they have them about different topics. So I think that this kind of cuts through some of those political boundaries and also um, gender differences, actually, their um, intellectual humility. There's, there's very few differences um, in terms of um, gender breakdowns um, between those who are displaying humility and those who are not. Maybe a, the, the final question or thought I've got is, is how does this project relate as an individual project to cultivate virtues personally, but also a communal one to model those in, in communities, relate to some of the structural questions that we've got around um, how you know, places of debate and context of debate and shapes of debate are already framed. Some people might say this is all very well and good, you know, focusing on intellectual humility, but it's too individualistic. It's really the structural questions that, that we need to look at. They're the things that need to be we change and we need to reboot and Sure, yeah, so I think this is just one piece of um, a larger puzzle. I think it's an important piece. It could be a foundational piece because I think getting our attitudes towards each other right um, is really important. But of course, um, there are structural issues which this may not tackle and um, we, we need to deal with those as well. But perhaps um, beginning with virtue is a really good place to begin those discussions around how we tackle those structures and systems um, and formulate new ways of working together. Bethan, thank you for all your work on the podcast. I'm looking forward to it and it's been lovely to talk now. Thanks. <laughs>